Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and it is feeling at least a little bit easier for us all to think this week than it did last week. Thank goodness. Um, In today's episode, we will be getting into all of the dancing that broke out both before and after Joe Biden was named winner of the U.S. presidential election this weekend, um, including the story behind the dancing mailboxes that took over what felt like the entire internet for a minute. We will discuss Billboard's cover story on choreographer Jaquel Knight, which went deep into Knight's quest to copyright his work. That's a potentially game-changing move for the commercial dance industry. We will talk about the resurgence of the movie musical, why it's happening now, and and what it means for both Broadway and Hollywood. And we'll have the first installment in our interview series, which is a conversation with Kyle Abraham, the much-lauded choreographer and the director of the interdisciplinary dance company AIM. So a lot of positive energy in this episode for the first time in, in too long. Um, before we get started, a reminder to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening platform of choice. We'd especially love some more reviews if you have a moment to share your honest thoughts, um, particularly now that we're launching our interview series. We would love to hear how you all feel about it and who else you think we should talk to. Um, let us know and and be sure to hit that subscribe button. All right, so now we're on to our weekly dance headline rundown and... I didn't mean to bait and switch you with that lead in about all the positive energy in this episode, but I did. We are starting with a story that is truly shocking. All right. Strap yourself in. Uh, Ashley Benefield, founder of the short-lived American National Ballet, was arrested last week on a charge of second-degree murder after her estranged husband, Doug Benefield, was shot and killed at the end of September. Now, the former ballet dancer had been embroiled in a custody battle and claimed at the time of the shooting that she had acted in self-defense, though in a statement, the sheriff's office said that they had not found evidence to support this. Shocking is the word, I think. I, I literally, literally gasped on seeing that headline. So unbelievable. For a new documentary, Akram Khan trained with three mixed martial arts fighters in an exploration of his relationship with violence. In an interview with The Guardian, he said, To experience life, sometimes you have to be very close to the threshold of death, and this principle led him to delve into the parallels between the violence of trained fighters and that of dancers. Definitely curious to see how that might inform his choreographic work moving forward. And English National Ballet launched a new streaming service called ENB at Home. The two-pronged service includes Ballet on Demand, featuring rentals of performances that will include a number of premieres in the next couple of months, and Ballet Active, offering ballet-based exercise classes alongside master classes with artistic director Tamara Rojo and other members of ENB's artistic team. Yeah, shades of the LA Dance Project model there. Interesting to see that in the ballet world. Yeah, looking forward to that. In a beautiful and absolutely moving Christmas ad by Amazon, a young black aspiring ballerina is cast as the lead in her school's winter production, only for it to be canceled due to the coronavirus, but her neighbors and sister help her perform outdoors instead. This has gone viral, I think it's safe to say, and the dancer who stars in the ad, Thais Finolo, is a pre-professional ballet student in New York and recently spoke with the UK publication Metro about her experiences with racism and why the ad resonated with such a large audience. Amazon ad giving you the feels. Did you have that on your your bingo board? Our bingo boards are looking pretty pretty crazy at this point. Yeah. Uh, and choreographer Andrea Miller teamed up with filmmaker Ben Stamper and the team at Northrop to create a film adaptation of her 2016 work Boat, which engages with forced migration. It will be streamed next Thursday, November 19th. A crew of documentary filmmakers has been following interdisciplinary artist and breakdancer Bill Shannon for two decades. Their film, titled Crutch, which refers to the crutches Shannon uses due to his physical disability, is premiering online until the 19th of this month as part of the Doc NYC Festival. Uh, And residents of Jersey City, New Jersey, voted to approve a non-binding referendum creating a new tax to support the local arts scene. The down-ballot item still needs to be approved by the city council, but would generate an estimated $1 to $2 million per year from a property tax at a rate of a half penny per $100 assessed property value. Definitely a statement of the importance of the arts. Yeah, one of the few pieces of election news that's unconditionally positive, that's not followed immediately by a but, you know, like voters can and they do support the arts. It's so good to hear. Actually, 
In our next segment, we are going to talk about another all-around great election story, which is that in the days following the U.S. election, we saw not a lot of unrest, as many had feared, but instead a lot of dancing. First, before the major networks called the election, dance parties started happening as people waited for ballots to be counted, including a massive two-day party in Philadelphia led by the now viral dancing mailboxes, which we'll talk more about. And then once Joe Biden became the projected winner, it felt like for his supporters, the most natural thing to do was start dancing in the streets. And Joe Biden is not really the kind of politician who usually inspires dancing in the streets, but it was such a moment of catharsis and joy for so many people. And as we dance folks know, when it comes to either catharsis or joy, nothing can match a dance party. Dance Magazine rounded up some of our favorite dance videos from the celebrations, including the Joy to the Polls, Count Every Vote Dance Party, um, Shen Ying of Martha Graham Dance Company doing a gorgeous impromptu dance outside in Jersey City, and James Whiteside dancing in his signature unicorn costume, in addition to several other, yes, exactly (laughs) what we need. As a recent Philadelphia Inquirer article pointed out, a lot of the election-themed dance parties seen on social media from Philadelphia were actually part of large-scale planning efforts from several organizations, including Power Interfaith and Reclaim Philadelphia, just to name two. Um, they were prepared for every phase of the election process, including dealing with a, quote, sitting president who will not accept the election results, as Nicholas O'Rourke said, who um, he's a pastor and organizing director of the Pennsylvania chapter of the Working Families Party. As for those dancing mailboxes on the street, you can thank Philadelphia-based nonprofit Spiral Q, which is an advocacy group founded in 1996 that uses giant puppetry and street theater. In September and early October, Spiral Q built the three mailbox costumes to promote voter registration. And in doing so, they partnered with another organization called Vote That John, which helps attract first-time voters. All these organizations deserve so much credit for taking what could have been an explosive situation and making it a joyful one. Joy itself, as expressed through dancing, became an act of resistance, which was beautiful to see. I am in Brooklyn still, and I was actually woken on Saturday morning by the sounds of my block cheering wildly, and I knew immediately what had happened. And like the first thought that my sleepy brain formed was, this is what hope sounds like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so much of What's happening? Like, so much of this was intentional and organized, but also the spirit of it is so of the moment and uh, really about being in your body in space with other people who are also experiencing the same thing. And isn't that like what we love about dance? And dance allows you to access that togetherness and that sense of solidarity and of empathy in such a profound way. And it just feels like. You know, the last eight months slash four years have been hellish in a lot of ways. And this, it felt like the correct response. Yeah, the correct, the inevitable, and kind of the only response to this this sort of moment. Gia Corliss wrote a great piece kind of summing this all mm. up in the Times. And the way she concluded it was by saying that in this moment, dancing was a way of reclaiming both our bodies and our faith in the world. Which that's it. That's that's exactly the heart of it. And I think also it gives me hope going forward because I think something we've talked a lot about is over the last eight months when we've all been so disconnected from each other and extremely digitally focused, the sense of are we losing connection with our bodies? Are we losing connection with the way we relate in space to other people? And I'm wondering if all this pent up sensation and emotion and drive to move is like, like letting that out in this cathartic moment. Is that like what we needed to shock our systems? And is that something that feeling of release and togetherness, like is that something we're going to carry forward? And is that going to change the way that we collectively think about and view dance as a Mm -hmm. society? It's interesting to me that dance in this really raw form is kind of having so much cultural impact right now, especially considering that for maybe the past five years or so, or just in this social media era, we've we've often seen dance make headlines or make waves in some way for more of its aesthetic properties of it or the social media clout potential and some of these other more traditional markers of value in dance. Um, But now in this current era with the pandemic and now the election, we're just kind of coming back to dance and its value is just 
pure self-expression. That element of it isn't something that we just sort of feel ourselves, but that we also, you know, exalt in a more public way, if that makes sense. And dance as a marker of community as well. Mm -hmm. So in our next segment, we're actually going to talk about some of that more polished dance that we have been seeing on social media and the, and the cultural power that it can have and that it it does have. Billboard's most recent cover features choreographer Jaquel Knight, who is the genius behind music videos, including most famously Beyonce's Single Ladies, and then more recently and also almost as famously Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's WAP. And the cover story is actually a business story. It talks about Knight's quest to copyright his dances. And his goal there is first to make sure that he gets the credit and the money that he deserves as a major creative contributor to these culture-defining works. But he also wants to start a larger movement by creating a publishing company for choreographers to help his peers register and eventually license their dances. This is so major, and there's so much to, to break down here, too. And as you said, Margaret, this is potentially revolutionary. And Knight points out in his recent Billboard interview that when something's created for a big name musical artist, the artist then expects to perform it worldwide for millions of people indefinitely. And some members of that creative team, like producers, of course, are compensated accordingly. But for a choreographer, despite how many times their work might be performed or shown or the larger cultural impact it has, often the main or only credit they receive is on social media, which doesn't help them to earn what they're worth. I think the really telling quote in the article was when Jaquel said credit on social media does not equal ownership. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're also frequently only paid day rates. Jaquel said he had this moment of realization when he was working on the formation video and discovered that the producer was making millions of dollars and he was stuck with this weekly rate, even though he was clearly such a critical part of that vision, that overall vision for that product that then became culturally revolutionary. And it's also worth noting Jaquel is a choreographer who is consistently credited and oftentimes mm -hmm. in commercial spaces, choreographers don't even get that much credit. Exactly. And let's, I mean, not even talking about the dancers who are performing the work that is being created. Good luck figuring out who those people are in these videos. According to the Copyright Act of 1976, a work can have federal copyright protection upon creation if first fixed in a tangible medium like a video or notation. So Knight has been working with Lynn Weber, who's the executive director of the Dance Notation Bureau, to create scores of his works. And she spent five weeks completing a 40-page long dance score for single ladies. And she's reportedly working on uh, WAP. And these will be submitted to the Library of Congress, which, of course, is significant not only for helping to secure copyright protection, but also because it formally places his work in the category of some of our country's most cherished choreographers throughout the modern history of dance. I just, that's a team up that I never would have envisioned, but I'm so delighted by. I, I love that whole part of the story so much the the visual of WAP being translated into lab notation which is usually you think of you know gram classics are recorded in lab notation and now WAP is going to be in the library of congress and it should be it has every bit as much impact as mm. any gram work also for Jaquel to promote copyright as a tool for empowerment for commercial choreographers his hope you know that it might become standard practice that would be complicated, but it's not a completely far-fetched thing, especially since in a lot of ways, it's easier to demonstrate the value of this type of intellectual property than it is for concert dance works because they have such huge exposure and they generate so much revenue for the musical artists who lead them. Latif Matima, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, but a law professor at Howard University, he was quoted in the Billboard story saying that this is comparable to the moment when Ray Charles negotiated back ownership of his masters. It could be that transformative for choreographers. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, it comes down to something that we've discussed time and time again. One of the going themes of this podcast is choreographers, when they're working in collaborative teams, deserve just as much credit, just as much payback, just as much accolades as everyone else on the creative team. It is what they do is not inherently lesser and there's no reason to think it is. And so recognizing that and giving them tools uh, that actually legally recognize that is huge. And it seems so obvious saying it now, but it's such a revolutionary idea. Mm -hmm. Especially in this particular corner of the dance world. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that the place where dance copyright is common is sections of the concert dance world run by old white men with lots of resources. 
Yeah, which is a which is a huge thing, right? Because like taking the time to do lab annotation for a dance, it's very costly to hire someone who knows what they're doing to do that. Go Jaquel for being the leader here. So next, we're going to talk about the rise, um, or rather the most recent rise of the movie musical. Uh, last week, the New York Times did a piece pointing out just how many Broadway shows are being adapted for the screen by either Hollywood studios or streaming services, because audiences cannot get enough of them right now. Um, this obviously isn't a new thing. Hollywood has had a sort of on-again, off-again relationship with Broadway for basically ever. But as the piece points out, you know, in the early days of film, stage shows frequently became movies. More recently, the tendency has been for movies to be adapted as stage shows, and now we're heading back in the other direction. And sometimes that adaptation chain gives us Franken productions like the upcoming film adaptation of the Mean Girls musical, which was itself based on Tina Fey's movie. And that movie was actually based on a book, which like Inception. Inception the musical is something that I would like to see, just putting it out in the universe. Continue. <laughs> and then I'll see, let's see the movie adaptation of that after it comes out. So the questions are, why is this happening? And then what does it mean for both industries, Broadway and Hollywood? So I was commenting when this story came out um, that in my time as a news editor at Dance Magazine, I just feel like I've been talking about this. Like, I feel like this has just been going on and there's this sudden uh, awareness and consciousness of it now, I think, largely in the wake of hashtag Hamilfilm this summer. Um, but like looking at the list of recent releases and coming titles and projects that have been financed, you have Hamilton, you have American Utopia, you have The Boys in the Band, What the Constitution Means to Me, The Prom, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Wild Mountain Time, West Side Story, In the Heights, Diana the Musical, Dear Evan Hansen, 13, Wicked. That's so many. That's just so many. Like it really is having a moment right now. And I think it's it's fascinating because it's easy to look at this on some level and be like, oh, is this like reactive to the pandemic when the reality is, no, this would have had to start work well before that because of the way that timing and financing works in Hollywood. But it is hitting at a particularly key and important moment in this moment when Broadway is shuttered. We can't go to the theater live. I think everyone is maybe craving it a little bit more because of that. And so these Film adaptations of existing works not only are helping to fill that gap in a particular way, I think it's also going to be wetting people's appetites for when we can gather in theaters again and watch theater together. Yeah, they do feel like such gifts right now, these films, as we sit at home. And I think it's also an interesting thing that always happens when you're adapting between uh, related but not equivalent mediums. How do these works transform in order to work on screen sometimes it's not very successful sometimes it's very successful and sometimes I think, it's cats <laughs> i wasn't going to say cats margaret <laughs> but i think it's it's a really interesting experiment and i think it exposes audiences who might not think about going to see a touring production to something that hey i i saw that movie maybe i should go check out what it's like live i i think it's all good things i think getting theater to more people is always a good thing yeah. I'm happy that this is happening. I remember in the past when there was that argument that you'd cannibalize the Broadway show or something to that effect um, with a film version. But that, I think, as you said, just kind of whets people's appetites for the actual thing because a film can't um, replicate the experience of going to a live performance. Well, and I think it's a funny thing, right? Where like that was the prevailing wisdom for a while. And I think it doesn't give audiences enough credit. I mm -hmm. think Agreed. look at any Hamilton fan finally getting to see the show after listening to the cast album on repeat or finally getting to see Hamill film after just listening to the cast album on repeat. They are so excited to finally get to see this thing or to experience it in this slightly different way, knowing that every performance is going to be slightly different. That's what we love about it. Well, and also talking about, yeah, it's just good to have more people seeing more theater. This is an accessibility thing. This, again, mm -hmm. something we've talked about a lot on the podcast, people who could not get to see a Broadway show, who do not have the resources to get to New York and actually buy the tickets, now have the opportunity to see some version of these musicals that are moving so many people. Mm. Um all right, we're actually going to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, we'll have our interview with Kyle Abraham. So stay tuned.
I am very excited to be here with the Dance Edit Podcast's first interview guest, choreographer and artistic director, Kyle Abraham. Hi, Kyle. Hey, how's it going? Uh, <laughs> it's going okay, whatever that, that means these days, right? Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to embarrass you now by reading a list of your accomplishments to you while we're here together on Zoom. So Kyle is the founder and artistic director of the interdisciplinary dance company, AIM, and the winner of numerous prestigious awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship, a Princess Grace Statue Award, and a Doris Duke Artist Award, to name just a few. In addition to all his works for his own company, he's created dances for companies including Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, Paul Taylor American Modern Dance, New York City Ballet, and Alvinelli American Dance Theater. And as a dancer, he remains one of the most compelling performers out there, period. Was that sufficiently uncomfortable for you? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like when like a grandparent's like, sing, baby, sing something. <laughs> like, <I know>. oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and it actually seems like you have somehow been even busier than usual during the pandemic. Can you start by talking about some of the projects you've been working on recently and about how they happened, even just logistically speaking? Sure. Yeah. What the heck has been going on? I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess if we're... You know, I think it's important, you know, it's like, sure, I've been productive, but I think it's super important to know that at the beginning and for like the first however many months, not only could I not do anything, I didn't want to do anything. Mm -hmm. I just was so like, just shook in so many different ways. And so there was so much for me to want to try and take in, you know, as someone that lives alone, doesn't have much family, my parents are deceased, um, I don't have a partner or anything, uh, no pets, you know, I just was like, I'm really really alone and all this talk that people are having about we're in this together I'm like no I'm actually alone like maybe you are in something together with you and your partner but my experience is very different from yours sure we are all struggling I imagine in some way but the ways in which we're struggling is very um different that said um I started uh, I got I got an email um from Deborah Baracus um when I was still out in LA she owns Baracus Studios really great space in LA um, and she was like, you know, if you just ever need to work anything out, I know we're in this pandemic, but I'm, I'm kind of like trying to, you know, follow whatever guidelines we can to just like clean a space. If you're just coming in by yourself or you and one other person, I, you know, I'd love to offer you space. Um, and when that happened, I just was like, you know what? Yeah, let me just try and get ahead of some projects. I had some commissions that were supposed to happen. They're not happening anymore. <laughs> that were supposed to happen. And I think my kind of level of naivete around the kind of extremes of this pandemic had me thinking that like this now being November, by by this time, a lot of the projects that I, I thought were happening in November would be happening. So I was like, let me just get ahead of the game, which is something that I do a lot. Um, and I started just trying to build material. And while I was building material, I was thinking about my company and you know, what I had uh, on the kind of docket for them, um, thing works that did not include my work, but other commissioned artists. So I thought maybe I can make something um, like a small project for the dancers, especially based off of how I generate material. And also from talking to, to some of my company members that I, I kind of just usually text with throughout time and just get on the phone with and just have personal check-ins. Um, and that kind of led me to, work on a project for them um, that winded up being a two-part project. Um, it's uh, mostly solos and duets, um, all set to and Simone songs. We're gonna make a kind of filmed adaptation of it, separate from it making a play to stage at some point in the near or distant future. Um, we've been putting the final touches on this um, work that I've been making, making inspired by the music of D'Angelo and you is D'Angelo's music. Um, I, I love him. I love his music. And he gave us the rights to his catalog, which is really, really amazing. It's a huge deal. And I've been yeah. working on it for two years. It was supposed to premiere in June, but of course, pandemic happens. Um, so I'm just working on that, uh, trying to make the space to ask questions of um, the dancers in the work um, about what, how things feel, how the sequence feels, how the vibe is, is reading for them internally and externally as well. 
and uh, making maybe a couple other things too. Um, I did the project for, I made a, a solo for um, Taylor Stanley um, for Lincoln Center. It was really for Lincoln Center in New York City Ballet. Um, they reached out to me around that same time that I was working in Deborah's studio. And I was like, yeah, we can make that happen. <laughs> um, yeah, and then more recently, Calvin um, Royal III, he, he had reached out to me and was like, oh, do you have any dances at around 10 minutes in length? Um, I was like, yeah, probably. He's like, I was like a solo. Um, and I was like, I don't know what I have that's a 10 minute solo that you'd even want to do if it was 10 minutes. Um, but I said, well, you know, what do you, what are you wanting to do here? Like what's, what's up? And he fills me in on the fact that he had been um, asked to do something for Fall for Dance and gave me the whole story there as to what he was um, hoping to do. He was supposed to do a Jerome Robbins piece really. Um, oh, really? But when, yeah. But when that, that they were having issues with like um, who could restage the work, I think was the problem or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, well, let me let's let's like go through it. Like, let me think of a bunch of choreographers that I think could be really exciting for you to work with. Um, and so I gave him a list of folks, and I, I said at the end of the class, well, you know what? And I I do it too if you want me to. I mean, but I, I don't want that to come off in any kind of way. I said I, I'm just down to help, however. Um, and he told the folks, asked the folks at, um, well, I talked to the folks at City Center and they were excited about me doing it. So that's how that happened. And I made that. I have a work that goes up at the end of the month um, for Ballet Flanders. It's like a very short dance film thing. That's like maybe five minutes, four and a half minutes. Um, and then working on a new work for AIM, like another larger work that is inspired by Mozart's Requiem but reimagined by one of my favorite musicians, uh, composers, et cetera, Jay Lynn. So that's really exciting. That uh, is set to premiere at Stanford University in the spring of 21, assuming it's May. So Fingers I mean, crossed. maybe yeah, May <laughs> might happen, you know? I mean, a lot of these works wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the bubble residencies that we were given um, at Jacob's Pillow more recently. And it was the first time and the only time, you know, until Lord knows when, that I was and or would be able to work on any kind of group material. I, I had a lot of, um, say, phrase work made either by me or the collaborators, the dancers as collaborators, um, but nothing was put in any kind of sequence or what have you. Um, so it, it gave me the opportunity to kind of build out a couple group sections, um, think that much more um, deeply around what it is I want to be making and or saying with this work. And at the same time, yeah, revisiting and or trying to put some of those finishing touches on um, this D'Angelo work, which is called An Untitled Love. Um, work on that, work on the Nina Simone works. And so I think those are the majority of the things. <laughs> that is a lot of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In a, a previous podcast episode, the other hosts and I were talking about how we've seen the pandemic and then the summer's racial reckoning turn a lot of dancers into activists. But since everything is mm. shut down, we haven't really fully seen how these sort of seismic events will affect the dances themselves, the work that people are making. Right. And yet it feels like you're one of the few exceptions to that rule because you have had some commissions that have come out during this pandemic time and you of course have used them to address these issues but at the same time that's not really a departure for you you know like race and the politics of race have always been part of your art yeah <laughs> so how how have you seen your work and your approach to it evolve over these past months i mean yeah i mean so i guess it's, it's a lot of a lot of things um yeah this is this a lot of what is in conversation around um art as activism in some way. I'd like to think that's a big part of what my work has been doing and or addressing. I, you know, as someone who is a huge admirer of, uh, you know, a lot of choreographers that came before me, um, I think about like, you know, I danced for David Dorfman and part of the draw there was just someone that wanted to make work about a better, a bettering society was really of interest to me. Um, the first time I saw Bill T's work when I was, um, in high school, it was still here. So it's a work that's really about, you know, community and life in a lot of different ways and bringing a lot of different voices to the forefront. So it made a massive impact on me as a maker. Um, but what I am working on right now, I mean, I think the only 
thing that kind of in any ways um, has any impact in terms of the in terms of subject matter is this Mozart's Requiem mm-hmm. because ironically as someone who's made a lot of dances looking at death and unjust deaths of course of black and brown bodies um, I said before starting this project that I wanted it to be about reincarnation um, so it's interesting to be making a work that's looking at kind of like the afterlife and reincarnation and folklore at a time when um, people around the world are dying in record, num- in record numbers due to this pandemic. Um, so there's something that kind of like plays a part in some way in the way that I choose to approach that, but it is in no way a somber dance. It's mm-hmm. so not. Um, I Part of it for me is like finding um, inspiration in the absurd and in the, um, in just trying to find, I guess, these different points of entry. Also thinking about like um, lack of re- representation in, in sci-fi. Um, so, you know, thinking about, you know, Octavia Butler's work or, you know, black futurism and seeing how this all plays a part in this re- reimagining of Mozart's Requiem um, is exciting. Um, I, I'd like to think maybe if anything, it opens more spaces for people to find interest to come and see these types of works mm-hmm. um, that re- recognizing that black artists are not a monolith and we can all have different vantage points and, points and obviously points of view. So yeah, I guess the larger thing is that my work overall hasn't really changed. I'd like to think that um, you know, something that is definitely worth noting is the dancers from my company started Aim for Change. Uh, it's a dancer-led initiative uh, that is really set up for the betterment of uh, black and brown communities. Um, so that's all on our website and it's living on our website. And that was something that they worked on during the pandemic. You know, we weren't, especially because I wasn't in a space to be creating for several months during this pandemic time. I, I think they just decided to come together um, and just kind of find new ways to make make change Yeah, as, as artists. And I actually wanted to talk to you about the fact that clearly the pandemic has been incredibly challenging for dancers and dance makers, but because right. you're also a company director, you have to lead an organization through this scary, uncharted territory. What have been the biggest challenges on that front? How have you sort of managed that? You know, <laughs> I don't. I actually think, I don't know. I actually feel like that is one of the only pluses. I think I've learned so much about um, kind of who I am, how I want to be seen, how I want to lead, how I want to be involved, how I want to collaborate. All of those things, really, during this time, you know, we we have had some changeover. I think there was. Uh, a dancer that left just because they realized that, you know, this is, you know, one of my favorite people, my favorite artists. Um, I lovingly refer to her as um, as my daughter, which, you know, <laughs> I don't have the kids. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of feel like her. She's like the Aaliyah to my Timberland. Um, uh, Marcella Lewis, uh, she, she left the company. I think part of that was for her, in my mind, part of it was, you know, being, she's from Los Angeles um, and her family's there. And I think they're, in this time, you, you really, it's so so important for people to either connect or reconnect with their families. Um, and, I, and I definitely, that's something that I was definitely trying to be super ver- verbal about in any, um, any opportunity I had to just talk about the pandemic. Um, because we have to find, we have to find something um, that is a positive in these dark times. And, and I think that family um, and community can be that, and you can reevaluate what those things mean. But I think <clears throat> those changes uh, of, in the company, like, like Marcella leaving or, or <clears throat> taking the space away from the in-person working and trying to plan has really had me really kind of reevaluate a lot within myself uh, and the way in which I work with my dancers in particular. Um, even different from the students that I work with at UCLA or any other university. Um, and the biggest lesson I've learned during this pandemic, which applies to the question you asked, <laughs> is, uh, is, is about trust. And I think, um, yes, we always say, yeah, there has to be trust on those sides and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the bigger thing is for me to realize that 
trust is an everyday exercise um, that I can never, I can never and should never walk into really any room with the assumption that everyone trusts me uh, and that, that um, you know, that is just innate. We need to reevaluate what those relationships are on a daily basis. It's interesting you bring up trust because it seems to me like you've developed these really deep relationships rooted in complete trust with not only the dancers in your company, but also some of these dancers you've worked with at other companies like Taylor Stanley in particular, Misty uh, Copeland, some of the yeah, Taylor and Ailey them. dancers. Yeah, I love them. Yeah. So what, what, how do you connect and, and why do you connect with a particular dancer? What helps create that foundation of trust? Sure. I mean, I guess, so that's a layered thing, you know, yeah. because I think, um, A, you know, on the most surface of levels, you want to make the best work you can make. And whatever level of collaboration exists within what we do as dancers and choreographers, it is innately co collaborative. Even if I am, with the quotes on it, making the steps and you are, <laughs> you are facilitating them, that is a collaboration. If I'm asking you for your input, all of these things, if I'm asked to make movement, all of those things are just other aspects of how we look at collaboration in our field. Um, but the real, the real kind of root of it for me is I want to, I like getting to know people. And that really helps the work be its best as well. Because we, we also, we then have a new kind of investment in what we're making. Um, I, I say on the first day of making a work for any company, if it doesn't feel good, it probably doesn't look good. <laughs> so like, let me know if you don't, if, if it doesn't feel good, whatever the material is. And we talk about it and we figure it out, we make changes. Uh, and nothing's that deep, especially early on in the process. Um, so that's really important. I think that helps a lot. If it doesn't feel good, it doesn't look good. I wish my ballet teachers had said that to me more often growing up because their approach was always, if it's not hurting, you're not doing it correctly. <laughs> Well, Sarah, Sarah Mearns did laugh when I said that. And was, <laughs> the first time I said it, she laughed. I was like, oh, wait, I, guess, I guess we're a different world ballet in modern. <laughs> um, so I want to go back up a little bit um, because you were talking about how your work connects to this legacy of, of artists that you watch growing up creating dances that were works of activism. Um, and yeah. you talked about that a lot in the opinion essay that you wrote for USA Today at the end of August about the importance of art that gives voice to underserved communities. Um, and we'll link to that in the episode description so everyone can read it for themselves. But just for listeners who might not have seen it, can you summarize the key message you wanted to communicate there and talk about why you wanted to get them down in writing at that particular moment? Sure. I mean, I think the thing for me is, um, you know, I think like at the beginning when you're like listing these accolades, uh, <laughs> like, oh, um, it's, it's not about like deflecting, but I think it's like, okay, sure, great, this is awesome. But I, what, I, what I have achieved is in no way, uh, would, would in no way be possible if it wasn't for all the people who've inspired me and my work. Um, you know, even if there's, if there's a dance that I've made that gets an award, I probably the week before went and saw a work of B.B. Miller's or Faye Driscoll's or Camille Brown's and, or Anna Sperber's. I was in the audience and then I get in my rehearsal. And I'm like, you know, I saw this awesome show. I don't, it's not that I want to do anything like that, what that, like what that was, but seeing, seeing that work just gave me a little jolt of just something. <laughs> um, and that's really important to highlight and mention. Um, especially when you have an opportunity to reach such a large audience as like USA Today or any, any publication, right? Or podcast, all these things. We need to be thinking about um, kind of beyond ourselves, right? Think about our history, think about what inspires us. Um, you know, one thing I, not to tangent us, but one thing I miss about like physical CDs is like, I used to read the thank yous and like read who was doing backing vocals because then I had other artists to want to follow and, and like I'd, I'd start figuring out, okay, well, if they wrote this song, what else did they write? Mm -hmm. um, and that led me to a lot of other musicians. Why can't we be doing that and, and dance in the performing arts still? Um, so yes, I am someone who's a huge kind of like admirer of, of all the artists I named um, and then some. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a lot of cross-pollinization between, um, you know, painters and musicians and, and dance and filmmakers, all of these things kind of um, coalesce to make, 
you know, hopefully our overall landscape much better. Um, but yeah, I think that was really important for me to, to talk about and to hopefully honor, you know, um, you know, the B.B. Millers, the, the Ralph Lemons, um, uh, Donald Byrd, Bill T, they were all mentioned in there. Um, it, it, part of it was seeing who they were and what they, what they were achieving mm-hmm. um, that gave me, uh, as a 17-year-old, you know, gay black boy from Pittsburgh, it gave me... Um, uh, a sense of unknown freedom um, to to um, feel as if there were less um, hardships in front of me than maybe they really were um, to to create um, or to just to live really. Mm-hmm. You've kind of touched on bits of this already, but it seems like you have this deep faith in dance's ability, specifically dance's ability to inspire and bring about social change. How do you think dances themselves can be works of advocacy or activism? I mean, one thing that I, I say a lot is, you know, when I make a work, um, especially for my company in particular, or some of these other companies, like Alien particular, or another, another good example, I, I'm making a work and I'm hoping that like the person that owns the corner store is at the show and the person that goes into the corner store is at the show. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that we create this kind of trust uh, in performance that makes an audience feel invited. Um, David Dorfman used to talk to me and comp- everybody in the company about this idea of invite versus indict. Uh, you need to make people feel welcome before you kind of like give it to them. <laughs> so there's something about that that, that kind of um, draws me in to the possibilities of change um, as it relates to, to live performance and really just the performing arts in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a kind of, like most of the people, there are a lot of people that go and see Revelations that have never been inside of a black church, but that work is transcendent. It goes well beyond the like immense spirituality that exists within the black church because there's, there's even just um, in the provocation of, of, you know, lyrics that say things like, fix me you know, fix me just like, as again, as a like gay black, you know, young man, not, not so young anymore, um, but like there was this thought that like, there was something about me that needed fixing. And I think that anyone and everyone can think about that. There's, there's, um, there's a meditation, there is a prayer. There are all these things that you can think of as you think about how you want to better yourself. And people can connect to that just based on the still beautifully abstractness, not, uh, abstractness of a work like that. And, and so that's something that I, I hope that I can do in my work, even if there is really pointed text, you know, in a work um, like Meditation Silent Prayer um, uses text by Carrie Mae Weems. Um, ironically, that dance didn't initially have any text, <laughs> which is why it was called a silent prayer. Um, and I was like, let me just do all this material that is really specific to this cause and just see what happens without um, without the work, without any words kind of guiding an audience. Um, but then that uh, music came to me uh, and I was like, well, this is really perfect for this dance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like dance specifically too. It's there can be that combination of specificity in the music and the steps, and yet universality in f- bodies moving. We all have bodies that all, all our bodies move, so that it can speak to such a broad range of people. It can be an especially powerful tool that way. Um, right. Yeah. And there's like also even just the power of subtlety. You know, you think like someone like Daniel Negrin. You know, like mm-hmm. what they did or what he did. Rather, it's just like. You know, it's it's so subtle and so sophisticated um, that yeah, it's just it's like something that you even you see now in like you know people that are doing a lot of different pop lock material or you know you look at more seasoned performers of a certain age mm-hmm. and you really have to honor the subtlety that exists and lives in their bodies. So much richness. Um, okay, so let's talk a little about the reason why we're doing this interview at this particular moment, which is that. Beginning on Monday, November 16th, you will be the guest editor of Dance Magazine for a week. Um, What can we expect from your guest editorship and how did you choose the stories you wanted that audience to hear? Oh yeah, that was really exciting. I mean, it is exciting. So I actually just just looked again today because Jenny just sent me 
um, Jenny Song. Yes, fearless editor-in-chief of Dance Magazine. <laughs> she just sent me some, uh, some more of the, the pieces as they're coming in. Um, and I was like, oh, this is such a like jolt of joy in this <laughs> really precarious time we're in right now. <laughs> um, yeah, she had reached out to me and asked me if it's something I'd be interested in after reading the, the, the piece I made for uh, USA Today. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's, let's do it. Um, so I made a list of different um, topics that I felt um, could be interesting for um, readers, um, but also obviously interesting to me for different reasons. Um, and then we had a little bit of back and forth on just you know maybe what has already been covered, um, which is always exciting to me because I, I really I really love um, what Jenny's brought to 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 Dance Magazine. She's just kind of like. I mean, I, I grew up, not grew up, since I started dancing, I was reading the magazine, but there's a whole other level of representation and inclusion that she's brought to that magazine from the second she was given her position. It's really kind of a, a true example of, of how to be inclusive as a, as a, as a leader, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there was one thing that we were talking about, and I think this part of this again, I think because uh, like Marcella had just left, I was thinking about this idea and thinking about my dancers. Um, part of me just wonders, I have no idea what it's like to be a freelance dancer anymore. Um, I mean, that was a very long time ago for me as a dancer. Um, and my dancers are salaried employees. Mm -hmm. So I, I do wonder, I always, always wondered, I'm like, what is that conversation between a, a freelance dancer and a salary dancer? Mm -hmm. um, what, how, how, do, how do they navigate on both sides and feel um, satiated in some way um, in, in the, the hats that they're, they're wearing? Um, so, so that's a thing. Um, one thing that came up for me, um, it is a bit of a joke, but it's also very serious. It's like titles. <laughs> like, how do we title dances? Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to um, Andrea Miller about this once. Um, I was having dinner at her house. Her and her, her and her husband, her, her partner, they they were talking to me about how he helps title the works. Um, I was like, oh, won't they help me out, man? Give me some, you know, come watch power. <laughs> um, but it's really important because you have to think about how this will cement the kind of legacy and documentation of your work. Um, and it gives an audience, ideally, um, a way in. Mm -hmm. um, if, it's, if it's a super abstract title, it can either cheapen the work or it could distract the viewers the whole time they're watching the work. Like, why is this dance called three times syrup? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't get it. I didn't, you know. So like just that, that was something that was interesting to me. I think we're in this place. Well, I think even when I was in that early emerging phase to like whatever happens thereafter, for me, it's always been this conversation of like, well, don't we always want to be emerging? Like, who wants to plateau? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so, we, so I, I asked about like what it means to be a mid-career artist and who's identifying as that. Um, and I remember, I remember years ago, maybe like ten years ago, when there was still Joy Soho, going to a meeting IP. with Linda Shelton. Yeah, I know, right? Linda Shelton, Kathy Eilers. They had me come in. Uh, it was me, Andrea Miller. Um, I wonder if Sidra Bell was there. Uh, a couple other choreographers. We were, we, were, we were asked to just give our feedback on their process. And there was a question about emerging versus mid-career. And of course, at that stage, we were, I think we all would have considered ourselves to be emerging. Um, but the, there was a conversation around, um, you know, some artists from a previous generation, um, artists like a Risa, Risa Jowslow uh, or um, a Janice Brenner, these these um, these choreographers that you know are a generation or two, I'll uh, say uh, one or two, don't matter, above us, but in a way that like they weren't perhaps given certain um, opportunities um, that you know maybe because there weren't as many grants for emerging at the point when they were emerging. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for us as we make our way into um, that next category of mid-career. 
Um, and so it's, it's always been an interesting thing for me to think about. Um, I feel like actually, I feel like Dance Magazine was the first place that ever said I was mid-career. At one point I was like, oh, I'm mid-career. <laughs> I can start losing funding. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that was just jokes. But um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a thing. And another puzzle piece, another, another um, storyline we were thinking about was like joining a, joining a new company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do a lot of talks uh, with universities and um, summer programs, winter programs. Uh, and, and in those, I'm obnoxiously candid, um, as I probably am in this uh, interview too. But um, one thing that I talk about is, you know, this, there's, a, there's something that dancers need to know who are interested in, in learning, joining a company. Just because you love that company and the dancers in the company does not mean that they're going to love you too. So, you know, you, you have to, it's good to get to know people um, one way or the other before you sign that contract because you need to know what you're walking into. You know, their dance companies, that whole idea is so kind of romanticized or um, <laughs> the complete opposite. <laughs> or Black Swan. Um, depending, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> depending on what movie you're watching. Yeah. Or, but, but that's the thing, you know, a lot of dancers use that cliche of like, oh, we're a family. And like, are you a dysfunctional family? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's important for dancers to really, you know, make the time to learn all that um, is encompassing of what that experience is going to be before you join or when you join. So that was that was something that I was interested in. Um, I think there are a couple other stories too, but um, those were some of the first ones. The emerging choreographer thing made me giggle a little bit because I've actually heard, and I think it's mostly dance critics saying this, grumbling about the other side of it. Like, why are we still, at what age do we stop calling choreographers emerging choreographers? And you're saying, no, we should always be thinking of ourselves as emerging. That's the whole idea. I love those two different- I always want to emerge. I want to keep, <laughs> keep breaking through, you know? <laughs> Camille Brown and I, we were having a, you know, she and I talk quite regularly. And we were, t- you know, at one point, I think maybe she was going through something. And I was like, you know, Camille, we just got to think about this as, as like a video game, right? Like, you know, you beat a really hard level there's always another level that's going to be ideally harder than the next one. Right. That's just the way it all goes. So it was really like thinking about that. And it's like, that's a whole other emergence. You know, every, every, every time you reach whatever it is you're reaching or you, you know, achieve something, there's, there's always a new obstacle uh, ready for you. Got to level up to the next Pokemon evolution yeah. or whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Thank you so much, Kyle, for sharing all your insights with us. And everyone, please make sure to check out his editorial takeover of dancemagazine.com beginning on Monday, November 16th. We're super excited. Thanks, Kyle. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you again, Kyle, from all of us. Just be sure, in addition to visiting dancemagazine.com next week for his takeover, be sure to follow Kyle on Instagram. He's at Kyle underscore Abraham underscore original underscore recipe, plus him. And also to follow AIM, the company's handle is at AIM by Kyle Abraham. You can find out more about the company and about the dancer-led initiative AIM for Change at aimbykyleabraham.com. And we'll link directly to the AIM for Change page in our episode description too. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. See you next week. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Esquoin, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.